right, everybody, welcome back to another Tell It Anyway. Mm. Uh, taking place in the little office above the butcher once again. This marks our first episode with the new routine in which Matt Flanagan will be sitting off to the side uh, throwing rubber bands at people. Hey, everybody, proud to be described as a routine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, when you say above the butcher, I was picturing this a lot differently. Like I was picturing grimy pieces of pork flying around. Like this is above like a very this is, upscale this is, filet this mignon is, butcher. Yes. Yeah. That voice you hear is Alan Zibble. Alan is returning to tell it anyway. He was on an episode where we told stories about. Was it shock? Shock. It was shock. It was shock. No. Alan, for 18 years, was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and is now the communications director for the Make Room USA campaign, which is a campaign to end the rental housing crisis, which is a totally worthy goal Thank in a you. place where rental housing is completely out of control mm-hmm. in non-stabilized exactly. and controlled areas. I was areas. a reporter for 19 oh, years. And the journal for the last, like, four, and the AP before that. Oh, okay. So Alan Zibble, total journalistic career, 18 years, outlasting mine by 10. So that's and if the me. articles were as exciting as this... Oh, no, I'm just kidding. You're mean. I'm Don't not be mean. mean. I'm not. Well, we're, we're tabulating years worked where. Okay. I was so, in an improv group for three years. After that, cool, I moved to Washington, D.C. Cool digest. <laughs> okay. Don't need you every other sentence. Okay. All right. So, That's my routine. I know. Also returning to the program after episode four, which was all about fear, Charlie Parrish. Hello, hello. Charlie is a stuntman and a gentleman and has been just about everything else in between in his long and varied career. I still don't knit. You're right. He is not a knit man. But wait. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. give it a week. Charlie was also a member of the U.S. military. I was kind of an odd soldier. I joined when I was 29. I was two years older than my senior drill sergeant. I volunteered with the infantry, did all my training at Fort Benning, Georgia. And then they happily shipped me to Korea for a year, where I was able to avoid any lasting international incidents until they sent me home. (laughs) And then I did the rest of my time proudly serving with the 101st Airborne Division in a unit called the 3rd Battalion, 187th Infantry Regiment, known as the Rakasans. They were the first combat unit to parachute into occupied Japan, and thus picked up the nickname because they saw the parachutes floating down, and they said it looks like falling down umbrellas. Rakasan. And you saw many places. I did. I saw many places and taught many people how to do very rude things to their fellow man. Yeah. <laughs> and how do we know you don't still work for the government? How do we know? <laughs> <laughs> I must say, they both make me feel very inferior. I was like, I'm a writer, my hobbies are napping and masturbation. <laughs> Tonight's story is the theme of after hours. Things that happen and go bump in the night. Most of my life has happened after hours. Nothing I've ever done in my life has ever had a normal schedule. So after hours for normal people is kind of where I live. I was a bouncer for for years when I first came to California. I threw drunks out of nightclubs. Hmm. So my after hours happened way after everybody else's after hours. 5 a.m., 6 a.m. Yeah, Yeah. sometimes, sometimes 7 a.m. 
I remember and getting snow. into my truck and, and driving out of the, the uh, parking lot of the bar. A kid flagged me down on the corner, and he looked like he'd kind of had a rough time. And he asked if I could give him a ride. Yeah, okay. Didn't see any reason why not to be a, a nice guy. So he climbs into my truck, and he's giving me directions. And the neighborhood we're getting into is having fewer and fewer streetlights. And he's starting to get really twitchy. And he reaches into his coat. Unfortunately, he failed to recognize the type of person he was in a car with. You picked the wrong truck. And the fact that I had a very sharp, very big knife tucked into the seat for just such an emergency. So I drew it and I put it against his neck and said, don't do that. Please don't do that. Just leave your hands out on the dashboard. And he put his hands out on the dashboard. And he goes, you can just let me off right here. This would be fine. I'm like, okay, I'm going to pull over. And I suggest you just open the door and get out. Because if you do anything other than that, it's going to go very bad. And I'm going to have to do a lot of paperwork afterwards. (laughs) That is yet another story that falls into the category of I'm glad it happened to Charlie and not to me. (laughs) There are so many of those. I was like, he didn't know who he was messing with. Luckily, I had in the back seat a box of crushed junior mints. (laughs) (laughs) It would have gone very differently for me. What would you say is a typical nighttime happening for you? Typical? Uh, I don't know that there is anything typical in my life. That's fair. Driving home one night from seeing a wonderful musician in a little town called LaGrange, we happened across a couple of horses that were just running down the road. (laughs) So, you know, what else do you do? I, I got out and got a rope out of the car and, you know, chased them into a corner and found the hole that they'd gotten out of and chased them back into their pasture and buttoned up the fence and like you do I love the things that because you're Charlie you're allowed to yada yada over like I got up my rope chased them into the corner <laughs> for me you the whole story Charlie. would be Hold would on. be chased them into the, the corner like how do you horse oh I didn't lasso all right now I'm gonna pepper you with more after hours story that took place in another country Oh, goodness. And with night goggles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, there's a good one. Um, We were doing a training exercise in South Korea, but as close to North Korea as you can get without causing an international incident. Mm -hmm. And my particular vehicle was uh, mounted with a tow missile system, which has a very... As you do. Right. Right. You had one of those as well. This is another one of those good thing it wasn't Matt Flanagan stories. (laughs) Flanagan! You lost the missiles. <laughs> the night optics on the tow missile system are, are really great, and, and they can see forever. So I'm looking through the night scope, and I just happen to swivel it past the river that is the border between North and South Korea. Wow. It's called the Imjin River. And I see on the other side of the river these shapes peeking over the berm at the Americans wow. through their own night vision goggles, and they see me looking at them through my scope, and they all pop back down like, like gophers. <laughs> So I swiveled my gun just enough to where I could catch them right at the edge and wait until they popped up again and would swivel my gun back and then drop again. And I did that all night long. That's a deadly game of whack-a-mole. What if they had like made a phone call? Does that happen? Is that like just a DMZ thing? It's a DMZ DMZ thing. I I think they were playing with me as much as I was playing with them. Right. So you could have started. We thank you for not starting World War III. Thank you. Yeah. We appreciate it. It worked out well because all I had was training rounds anyway. Yeah. Yeah. What's a training round? It it's just a weight so that you feel like you have a missile in the launcher. Oh, okay. But it doesn't actually shoot anything. Right. Right. Mm. Yeah. When when things go bad, you really want the ones that go boom. Mm. <laughs> I have an 
after hours story with Charlie because we were together. Does everybody out there remember when the airport security went from being privatized airport security to uh, to uh, uh, a nationalized airport security, and 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 there had to be a whole sort of makeover so that the you know government could be in charge of the security at the airports because they do such a good job. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> Since then, no belts, you know, no flawless, shoes, yeah, no problems. And so, what they were essentially that was a. a huge number of people working on that job across the country at airports across the country and they were looking for people and they called them logisticians to come in and sort of help assist with that training and help the trainers and supervise those trainers and I somehow and to this day randomly got the job as a logistician and if you've been listening to this podcast or you know me at all personally logistician would not be the term you used to describe me necessarily nope. my just to clarify for the listeners matt flanagan was hired by a subcontractor for the federal government yes <laughs> yes and uh, uh as it turned One out call, a, a guy flanagan stepped up yes, but and, like and very his, slowly <laughs> and, and very inefficiently served his country the director of my improv group at the time his father was a colonel and so through this this guy i had i found got this opportunity to have this job and i showed up and i remember there was another guy there was a, 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 a motley crew of us who were there but I was the only one who just, you know, sometimes when you meet me, and it's not completely, totally true about me, but I, to some extent, I may be a funny guy, but with certain things, I radiate incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean if that I'm an incompetent person. of Matt's but, mind. Yeah, but because I'm a self-effacing guy, not necessarily a coordinate, coordinated guy, a very polite guy, very sort of, you, you wouldn't necessarily consider me a guy who would be a get-the-job-done kind of guy. And Charlie was there. He is the polar opposite of that. Many of the other people there were like that, and they were thinking, what's this guy doing here? Charlie wound up with me and all these other guys being shipped out to Las Vegas for McCarran Airport, and we were responsible. We were put in a hotel, you know, all of us together, to basically be the grunts in charge of making sure that the trainers did their training. And and, and I remember we, we, we quickly became fast friends, uh, and we did, did we didn't we decide to was it you who convinced me it was a good idea to do the night shift because oh yeah because like you know it's kind of your own world and there are kind of you know like in the day while people are getting slammed and everything like that but at night you know certain things are happening and the hardest part of the job is the fact that you have to do it all night long and he was right and we were on this night shift together. Mm-hmm. So do you have to do a lot of it? You, man, with the feather boa, take that off. We were we weren't really at the you airports Elvis, that much. Clothes. We would get we would get the trainers would have to meet these certain you know they would they would check these boxes to show that they had served logged a certain number of hours training at certain stations, and we had to make sure that you, that actually occurred. And we had to sort of go over to make sure those all those boxes were checked. They were yeah. like sort of uh, we tracked all of the equipment, we tracked yep. all of the training hours, we verified training hours. From time to time, we'd go to the airport. We were there to sort of serve them and make sure they had proper accommodations to provide transport, stuff like that. One of the funniest things I remember about McCarran Airport is, you know, one Thursday, I looked around and the only people in the room were me and Matt. <laughs> Everyone else had gone. Yes. All of the programmers had gone. All of the supervisors had gone. We're like, what's going on? And after a few hours, they were all back. And the following Thursday, it happened again. And the third Thursday, we decided, well, you know, we might as well find out where everybody's going. Well, Thursday is the day that all the strippers arrive from other <laughs> yes. places. Uh, 
So they were all going to the airport to get an eye on who was going to be headlining where. It was sort of very much like an Animal House vibe. You should probably tell the story of what you guys did to me when I was in my hotel room. Not feeling well. <laughs> yes. Probably one too many buffets. Or one or too many beverages. beverages or, right. or, or both. And this was what, 02? This was 02, yeah. It was yeah. a year after 9-11. And probably Our one, one too many dairy-based treats mm-hmm. as yeah. well. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, as I am a lactard. <laughs> and he, uh, he had to run off to his room to relieve some of the internal pressures. Mm-hmm. We waited just long enough for him to get good and seated and then started knocking on his door. <laughs> to which the first knock, he's like, yeah, who is it? Housekeeping. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Go away. <laughs> A few seconds later, we'd knock again. Housekeeping. <laughs> I said it's fine. <laughs> Was he starting to get like classic Matt Flanagan angry? Oh, yes, oh yeah. I was. Oh, yeah. And, and it didn't take nearly as long. So finally, about the, the fourth knock, he's like, This is not a good time. <laughs> and we knocked a fifth time, and we hear <laughs> slamming of doors. And he opens the door and sees us standing there. And all of the anger just washed right out of me. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It was, for, for what we were doing, it was a very good time. And then, it was like camp. Yeah, it was. So that was Charlie in the airport, after hours, in a plane. Oh, yeah. He's some, always got one. Some of these I can't tell. <laughs> uh, I knew it. I kept waiting for like the story. Those are the ones tell. you should tell. No, like treason. Oh, no, no, no it's, it's, it's not that. It's... It's just the reputation of some people would fair enough would not fare well. Um, but I will tell you this: when you fly from the United States to another country on the tab of the United States government, they treat you really well going into foreign countries. Mm-hmm. All the booze is free, and it's a really nice airplane. And the stewardesses are all military members, so it's pretty efficient. You ask for a drink, you get a drink, and they know you're going to a foreign country, so it's not one of those little. You know, half size, you know, cups. It's it's like a pint it's glass a full drink, of something. Yeah. So I drank for twenty eight hours on the way to Korea. <laughs> oh my oh god! My I would drink and I would go to sleep and I would wake up and I would drink and I would go to sleep and I would wake up and I'd drink and go to sleep and I woke up in Korea <laughs> with a hangover and an attitude. One poor person did suffer the ill effects of my debauchery on the plane because I was put into briefings for about eight hours upon landing in Korea hungover. So I was even less jolly when I got to the unit that was going to be my home for the next year. And I had this roommate. And he was a smaller guy and he was he was kind of like that yapping puppy in the uh Bugs Bunny cartoon. Mm-hmm. He was always following along the spike. <laughs> and you know they they put me in the room and he's like, "Hey, uh well, hi. I'm and you know, hey, the guy spike, that's spike, been, spike. been in the, the room longest usually makes the rules, and I guess that's me, so I guess I make the rules. And I just took him, and I stuck him in his wall locker, and I shut the door. <laughs> and I proceeded to unpack a little bit, and I walked over, and I opened the wall locker. I'm like, I need it to be quiet. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I can be quiet. I, I get that. You know, you've, you've had a long day. I can be quiet. And I shut the door on him again. And I just left him there, and I started unpacking. And my platoon sergeant comes and knocks on the door, and I open it, and he goes, Where's your roommate? He's in his wall locker. (laughs) And he walks over and he opens the wall locker door and there's this little three-drawer chest that's in there and he's sitting on it. And he looks out and he waves to the platoon sergeant. The platoon sergeant shuts the door back, looks at me and goes, you're going to get along just fine here. (laughs) 
Let me ask you, that brings up a question in my head. Friends of mine, like my writing partner has often joked, that were I, even not not even right now, like right now I'm a heavy man, but were I to have shown up even when I was in the shape of my life, around the time when I first knew you, and showed up in the army, his uh, prediction would be like, from the moment I showed up and said, hey guys, I'm in the army, I'd be getting hit with soap. And that would be what happened. And then it would be like, you know, like, fly it again. Why is your rifle covered in chocolate? Like, or do, do you think that would happen? I know. Here's the thing. Here's the funny thing about the military. The funny guys are the most important member of your team. Because mm. humor is what keeps us going. Because your life is, is crap. I mean, right. every day you're eating a shit sandwich with no tomato. You know, you're... you're I wouldn't want it with a tomato. Yeah. No, I know. So, so I, you're saying that perhaps I could have gotten by with, hey, Koreans, put down your guns. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, well then, finish us off this particular segment with an after-hours story in Haiti. Oh, <laughs> Who boy. doesn't okay. have one of those? I mean, so, am I right? We were tasked out to protect a group of Seabees. Seabees, for those of you who don't know, are Naval Construction Battalion. They're basically a construction crew that just happened to get drunk enough to join the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly how they are. (laughs) My first experience with the Seabees, I see an older gentleman on his way to the bank of Portageons that are on our post. And he only gets like three or four steps, and then he starts looking around suspiciously. So my curiosity's peaked. Something's going on. This could be funny. So... (laughs) So I sat and watched, and after his cautious approach, he finally darted into a port john and four big guys came running up with a ratchet strap, oh. wrapped it around the port john and ratcheted him into the port john oh. and then ran off laughing. <laughs> and I thought, you know, they'll, they'll be back to let him out. I mean, it's, it's 98 degrees out here. Oh. It's probably God. really hot in that port john They'll let him out. And after about 10 minutes, I thought, they're not coming back. So I went and knocked on the Porter John. I'm like, hey, I don't know who you are. I don't know why they locked you in there, but I'm going to let you out. And he goes, oh, thank God. Those assholes left me in here for two hours yesterday. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> like, who are they? And he goes, they're my CBs. What do you mean? He goes, I'm their master chief. I'm their boss. Oh, oh my God. no. <laughs> okay, well, we got tasked to protect them. Yeah. Uh, while they built schools and built uh, wells and whatnot. So... As we were spending so much time together, we all became really good friends. And the nice thing about the post in Haiti is we had our own bar that were run by Marines. Yeah. Uh, and Marines make great bartenders, oddly enough. <laughs> um, I'd buy it. But we got to drinking one night, and our, my first sergeant was a ranger. He had been a ranger instructor for every phase of ranger school, including phases that don't exist anymore. Mm. So, you know, he's six one and probably 180 pounds of just sinew and mean <laughs> and we were drinking with the seabees and they'd started throwing each other into the swimming pool and they'd run out of seabees to throw in the swimming pool so they started throwing my guys in the swimming pool and then they looked over and saw our first sergeant went bet you we can get him in the pool and i'm like you're gonna need help <laughs> so eight seabees and four infantrymen against one ranger and it took all of us to get him into the pool <laughs> We had him on the edge of the pool, and he was holding himself up on the edge. 
and I had to back up and gang tackle the whole group into the pool to get that <laughs> <many> right. <laughs> so wait, what happened to the master chief in the latrine? Well, I let him out. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I'm thought, still there to this day. I thought it was going to end with, and then I went and talked to the CBs, and he was a dick, so I kept him. No, out. no, no. I let him out, right. and then about three nights later, I see him with a giant ratchet strap, the kind you use to ratchet strap cargo into the the bigger C5 Galaxy airplanes. Mm-hmm. It's it's about eight inches wide and you know 100 feet long, and he had wrapped it around the entire building that they were sleeping in, and ratchet strapped them shut so they couldn't get out. <laughs> And then a CB tried to get out and realize what had happened, and then I hear a chainsaw start up, and they, they cut a hole in the floor oh and God. crawled out that way. Oh, my God. As you do. Well, uh, may I be the first to say thank you for your service, not the least of which is because it generated all yeah. these amazing yes. stories. And thank I, Matt I, Flanagan for his service, yes. too. Oh, sorry. Matt, thank you for your service, service as a subcontractor to the federal government. I think of you oh, every time I have to take off my shoes in the I airport. could never have done it without Charlie chasing yeah. horses into the corner. is not as interesting as Charlie's. No one's is. Mine is not. Matt's is not. I, I'm not sure mine is. Yeah, you're the dullest person in the world who gets put into these situations. Sure. <laughs> okay. So when I was thinking of after hours and what to talk about, I was thinking about, you know, I, I had a child and then I had a second child. So the past seven or eight years have been a lot of early hours, yeah. not really after hours. And what story could I tell that would kind of tie into after hours. I decided to do a story really about aging. You know, I'm in my 40s. My lovely wife, Renee, who's been on the show is... Your wife is in her 30s. In her 30s. <laughs> in her late 30s, almost 40. Just uh, things would not have gone 30s. after hours. Yeah, uh, gone well after hours after that. <laughs> and so we, um, as a family, just went down to Key West. Just This happened just a few weeks ago. We had a great time with our kids. We were in Florida. Went to the beach, did all kind of Key West stuff. We, but we wrapped it up early, as you do when you're a parent. Um, your, you know, kids need to sack out early and all that. And so we decided. I just, it was our tenth anniversary, actually, as a married mm-hmm. couple. Um, and we were thinking of what to do, which just passed, 2015, yeah, yeah. right? If you remember, you were at our wedding in 2005 in a bow tie. <laughs> yes, I remember. It's a beautiful wedding. Yeah, and my mom put a tie on you. <laughs> no, a bow tie. Uh, a bow tie. Alan and I go, go way back. We were friends in high school, and I was at Alan's wedding, and something. I think I got a stain on my tie. Flat again. No, Why you is your rifle sticky? Not- I feel like I had a tie with me and there was a, one of those slight oh, like yeah. oil type stains, like a very light stain on it. And I decided not to wear it and just show up with a jacket and a, a button up shirt. Because they don't sell ties in Baltimore. <laughs> they don't sell ties. Well, we were running We were running out of time. I was, I was uh, giving a speech for the re- at the reception. I was finishing it up. material to work on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to work on. And, and so I decided to go like a cool guy. 
I think I could get away with it. And Alan's mom said, she uh, called like, that. oh, he's not wearing a tie. And she went and she took a tie from one of the waiters, one of the yeah. caterers, like a bow tie, and put it on me. She managed to make you and the caterer guy feel bad. Yeah. Like a, so a pudgy Matt. white Malcolm X. Yeah. <laughs> wearing a bow tie and I had to read a passage and come up there wearing a bow tie. It was humiliating, but it was yeah. a wonderful wedding. <laughs> Renee's guests had to leave before the dancing in the wedding, right? Because their religion is footloose. <laughs> <laughs> there are very religious people in the family and they don't, they don't watch mixed dance. Yeah, right. like so we decided to celebrate our wonderful 10th anniversary um, in Miami. Um, and we were able to send our kids off with my in-laws, with uh, with a grandmother in mm -hmm. uh, north of Miami. So we had a night to ourselves, and we decided we would stay up late. We found a place to go for dinner for New Year's Eve 2016, 2015. And it was like this very kind of hipster, millennial Miami place. And we had a lovely dinner. It was cool. It's one of these things where you like prepay like 150 mm -hmm. bucks each. You know, it's like we, yeah. we were splurging, right? A nice dinner, and then we walked around. We had some drinks, da da da, and like the place started to fill up, and it was all much like here in Los mm -hmm. Angeles, where everyone is like under 25 and really attractive. Mm -hmm. like, uh, the, the whole city. Don't ever go to the beach in L.A. It's an <laughs> exercise <laughs> in shame. Right, right, yeah. right. No, Miami, like very similar, right? I'm not like a real party person like I'm not somebody who like felt all that comfortable at parties in college like but I did it whatever but I'm, you? Not, I'm not an after hours <laughs> type like I much more like hanging out with friends and in a know, basement in the in a basement yeah. I, I would I would take hang out with friends in a basement any day to yeah. being Amen. A, a loud crowd of people so we were we're at this party there's all these attractive millennials we were hanging we, you know we thought we were kind of cool like you know it was fun we were fitting in and all that um and round about like 11.30, the hotel had their party photographer. What was happening when you were hanging, by the way? Were you at the bar? Were you... It was, there were multiple bars. It was great. Yeah. There was like an upstairs bar. There was a downstairs bar. There was DJs. There, there was a pool. It was like very cool. Very hip. People were nice. People were friendly. I mean, not like we were talking to anybody, but we were talking to each other. We, we, we thought we were fitting in. Right, right. Until there was a party photographer there. And we were, you know, we were just standing and talking and, you know, being lovey. It's been 10 years yeah. and all that. And the party photographer was taking pictures of people at the party. And he took the pictures of people next to us and then other people next to us. And he just walked right by us and didn't <laughs> take a picture of us. And I, at first blush, I like didn't think of it. And, mm -hmm. and Renee was like, he didn't take a picture of us. What's going on? Like, you know, are we too old? Are we too ugly? Are we too, and I was like, honey, come on. Like, no big deal. Like, yeah, don't, yeah, don't worry about it. No big deal. And then so we, we, you know, walked around some more, checked out the sites. They had, it was like one of those things where you, you write on the board, like, what are your thoughts for the new year? And there was all this like, you know, typical kind of millennial shit. Like, yeah. like you know, live fierce. Like, hashtag live fierce. <laughs> hashtag fierce life. I don't know why that night, I mean, I had been drinking a lot and I, I was, um, I, I was, I kept on talking about Carly Fiorina. Um, I was, <laughs> as you do, as you do. Like, so yeah. so I was I'm just trying to make friends, talking about Carly Fiorina. Well, I was Fiorina. talking to my wife. I was trying to. You heard about this Carly Fiorina? Let me fucking tell you about Fiorina. Yeah. So I, I wrote on the board. I wrote like Year of Fiorina. 
Purina 2016. Like, I don't know. I just thought it was, I was drunk enough and I thought that was really funny. And Renee was like, honey, stop it. <laughs> it's not funny if you just say Carly Purina over and over. So we walked around and then we saw the photographer again. And we were standing in a different place. And we were like, and I was like, oh, maybe he'll take, maybe that was just like he didn't see us that time. And he did it again. <gasps> there was like a young couple and young, attractive couple. And then a group of four people at the table, like, hey, happy new year, happy new oh year. My God. And then he's like, oh, you again. Like, I'm not taking your picture. The second time, and I was like, shit, like, she's, Renee's not just being paranoid. Like, yeah. he's like, really doesn't want to take our picture. Oh. And it's not like everybody, this was like an open thing. It's not like everybody was friends. Like right. this was like a, a an open party with like, like several. These are the people at the party. It was like several hundred people. Yeah. He, as a documentarian, he was not doing his job. Right. Not right. And you can't ask picture. him to take your picture. That's like Jeb Bush asking the audience to clap. Please clap. <laughs> yeah. Please clap. And so it happened again, and we were like, "Wow, mm-hmm. wow!" And that it sort of dawned on me like. Maybe we're too old for after hours. Yeah. Yeah. We had fun though. All in all, I would say yeah. it was a great night. We had a, a lot of, of fun. We had a great dinner. We went back to our Airbnb. We, it was just like, it was really nice. See, now let me tell you what Matt Flanagan <laughs> I was just about to yeah. say that. It was not, and all in all, it was fine. Yeah. But like I was, and I, you can tell I'm still like a little hurt. Like why? Yeah. What's the problem? Like we weren't the only 40 year old late 30s people there there were others in our demographic now matt do the reenactment i'm the photographer i come by i take charlie's picture i take alan's picture and then i just i would slowly get angry a white hot fire of righteous anger born of lack of fairness yeah will come up in me really oh yeah yeah and i would have got and the first way i would have addressed it was and I would have tried to force Jenny to do it with me, but I would I would have gone to where the other people were being photographed and kept photobombing. Yeah, I would have gone behind each one, everyone, for the photographer. And if he said something, I would start to get in a verbal spat. And he was like, he was like, what's your problem? Why are you getting into the things? I don't know. It just seems like you're kind of selectively taking photographs. He's like, look, well, maybe we're I'm only taking really the attractive people. really maximize the value of our brand a little bit and uh, just make sure that the people that we <laughs> put on our website really represent the clientele that we want to encourage at the Delano. Well, I paid my $150 to be here among these people, and I think Sir, I deserve a photograph, uh, can I too. I direct you over to the shrimp buffet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's only because you know how to defuse that situation. Just present the shrimp. Yeah. Why can't he just throw in a bone? This is digital photography. It doesn't cost anything. No, just I know that. It yeah. is. And to me, it does uh, bring up a fairness thing. And this raises this raises a question. This, this after-hour story raises mm-hmm. a question that comes up often among Jenny and I. And I actually would like two very different gentlemen to weigh in on this. And this is, to what extent is... A husband allowed, if he perceives something to be unfair and the other person is clearly wrong, to what extent is a person allowed to get in an argument with the the, (laughs) the party that's doing the wronging? Because a couple weeks back, Jenny and I were walking down the street, walking our dog. It was after work. It was after a long week. We were both tired. Neither of us was in a bad mood. And another guy who had two big dogs off the leash came across the street. And he was like, kind of like, he seemed like a kind of rough and tumble guy. He seemed a little weird. But he was friendly. He was friendly. And the the dogs, you know, kind of circled around Jack's. And he said, oh, hey, how you doing? How you doing? We were like, hey, how are you? 
And that's how we are. We're not like, oh, your dog should be on a leash or this because our little dog, Jaxie, is off a leash as well as his. So we continue walking down the street. Now, on the other side of the street from where this guy with the two big dogs came comes another guy with this dog on a leash, a sort of very sort of tight looking Asian guy, I think. Uh, I believe that would be Hispanic. Hispanic it probably guy? doesn't matter for the story. <laughs> Same thing, right, oh. people? No, I don't know. <laughs> So, this guy so, comes across the yeah. street and, and uh, I'll tell it because <laughs> I know you're going to because I know you disagree with me on it. That's the point. And this guy, this tight guy, this this uh, Hispanic Asian guy comes, <laughs> comes down the street. He's he's got his dog on a leash and he's and he gets into a little altercation that Jenny and I don't hear because we've walked a little bit further down the street. We don't hear it. All we know is it was some kind of an altercation with the guy who had to do two big dogs, a little yelling like, oh, get your dogs out on a leash and ah, screw you. And he came by and he kept walking down the street and he had quickened his pace to overtake Jenny and I. And he walked past us with our little dog and our little dog never would would bite anybody, is not an intimidating dog, is a tiny Pomeranian, is not outside anyway a yappy Pomeranian, wouldn't bite your heels, wouldn't do anything. But the guy goes past and he says, you better put the, your dog on a leash unless next time you don't want my dog to bite its face off. I said like, oh, what was that? And no, actually, I don't think I said what was that. I think I said, fuck you. Which <laughs> yeah. yeah. in a lot of places means, what did you say? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the guy turned around. I said, yeah, fuck you. And he said, yo, yo, why don't you, you know, uh, something like, oh, I, I, I can't. at this point, I was seeing red to such an extent that I didn't hear what he said, but he turned around and started jawing at me and something ha- goes lights up in me when that happens white and I want to jaw back white hot rage and I'm jawing to him and I'm just saying like oh, our dog is fine I don't know what you want to say and he's like he, he's jawing at me he's jawing at me and as this is happening Jenny doesn't like it because I was engaging grabs my and I'm not listening to her she's like let's go home let's go home let's go home grabs my face pulls it to the side and says let's go let's go and I made some sort of remark like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to get into another confrontation with a man and you can grab my face like that again. But the the gist of our discussion <laughs> after that for the next several hours was to what extent it's OK for your wife to pull you off and out of an argument and to what extent it's OK for you if the other party is clearly as clear as I can be in these things in the wrong Okay, for you our to go back and forth. Our dog was off the leash. I, I know our dog was off the leash, but we weren't Legally being we weren't speaking, being assholes. We didn't start right. anything. All he did was Judge walk by Charlie us and say something. Here's a couple in. of things. Yeah, one, he was taking out on you something that had happened to someone else. Yes, yes, yes. So which I pointed out. He yes. was he was in the wrong. Yeah. Two, he made it a point to come past you guys so that he could continue an argument with somebody that was completely unrelated yes. to the person he was arguing with. So again, he was in the wrong. Jenny also mentioned this. So, <laughs> yes. But, their dog wasn't on but the your leash. dog was was not on the leash, but I know your dog. Yes. And this guy obviously had issues. Now, I've had to temper my anger over my lifetime because bad things can happen that lead to dark nights and, and deep holes and a lot of time spent with a shovel. Yes, yes. Oh, great description. <laughs> so my approach to those things usually is, how is this going to affect me in the long run? Does it change the price of beer? If the answer is no, probably not going to have this argument because it, it will end poorly. Mm-hmm. 
is this guy a threat to my wife? Because if the answer right. is yes, it's going to be a long, dark night with a lot of right, time with right, the shovel. Right, That's right, then right. So there's, there's a big gulf between those two actions. Yes. And the way I handle a lot of those things, when I do need to say something, but not necessarily break someone, right? I might have a, conver- I might have a conversation have like, you yeah, know, I get it. You're upset. My dog's obviously not the problem. It'd be best for you right now to just keep walking. And we'll go on about our business, and, and I hope you have a good day. The other option is you stand here and keep yelling at me, and you know your family will still wonder what happened to you 20 years from now. <laughs> yeah, but if you don't have a credible threat, you can't say You have, but you, you have, have a credible threat. Oh, hey, threat. thanks, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Credible Threat. (laughs) You have the presence of mind to do that, though. I, for some reason, don't have the presence of mind. I get angry right away and I can't stop it. That's why I took your face in my (laughs) hand. But is that right? Is it right to take the face and turn it away? Because if you did that, you'd be mad at your wife. Having a temper, very much like Matt's, generally touching me when I'm in that state is the last thing you want to do. Right. So that might not have been the best choice. Whereas maybe stepping in between them, facing Matt, going, hey, eyes down here, not worth it, let's go home, would have been okay. would have been a better way to treat it because then two things have happened. One, you've interjected yourself physically in between the conflict, so now there's, there's yeah. nothing but negative space. This guy's talking to your back, your husband's looking at your face, right? and you've allowed Matt to walk away with his integrity and, and with his... And manhood stolen, manhood basically. Yeah. Well, I will accept that as a from a conflict resolution specialist. Right. No, I like I get that, that. that it doesn't affect the price of beer. I get you should that. Back All right, off. so just think about the price of beer. Okay, next time. that's good. That okay. could be our code word. And how did you end it? Without did you, did you say threat. anything at all? Did you give a dirty look? Did you say? Oh any- God, no! I, I hate conflict. <laughs> right, but if there is a conflict, what is your way of to, to up? Uh, avoid it? <laughs> I back down from that. I don't. Right. I don't Taxi. <laughs> We've heard about after hours in like a jazzy club in Miami. And sometimes when I think about after hours, I think I was just at a George Clinton concert and now I'm at the Waffle House and we're all eating and drinking coffee and having a good time. <laughs> right, right. This is what I think about when I think about after hours. Sadly, my after hours story is not like this unless it's the kind of cool that you get when you're freezing to death in a drafty television studio. <laughs> Basically your 20s. My 20s. So uh, from late 1999 to early 2002, I worked at the foreign desk at CBS News. This is the place where I first learned what it meant to be a producer. And it's not because I actually did any producing. It was because I was listening to other people producing over the telephone. It was sort of like I was involved in a radio drama in which producing was happening. I learned to be a producer later, but this was my in, like my introduction to the type of journalist that Sam Jackson would call a badass motherfucker. <laughs> okay? Now, 
they don't have a foreign desk at CBS News anymore because it's not the 1800s and that's a colonial kind of word. It sort of like implies that the rest of the world is strange right. because it doesn't respect high T. International huh. desk. Yes. So now we call that's it the weird, international desk. That's weird because your whole life then was, I remember when we were dating long distance and every time I talked to Jenny, she'd answer the phone, foreign desk, Jenny, foreign desk, Jenny, foreign desk, Jenny. Yeah. And yeah. international, I checked it, is six syllables. International desk, Jenny. Oh, that's yeah, it doesn't work. Good. Yeah. Whereas you could actually say foreign desk, Jenny, which is what I would say to Matt. And sometimes still does. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And in my day, there'd be like one guy who was from a Spanish speaking country. And so we'd get lucky and have an international type person at the international desk. Hispanic desk. Asians. Now, <laughs> now Asians. the CBS News Foreign Desk is like run by people who have lived in the world, who have covered things in the world. They know their shit. It's a great organization. So when I was there, the thing that they spoke in the newsroom really was big swinging dick, okay? <laughs> because this was 1999. This was the last gasp of a time when it was like a, a major New York newsroom was strutting white guy heaven. So we're talking about a lot of very smart, ambitious, alpha white dudes jockeying for position around the anchor of the network. And the way that the anchor walked was as if the entire state of Texas was on his back. So he had a lot of weight on his shoulders at that time. Everybody sort of went towards that. The president of the network had this mustache that could clean a frying pan. It was <laughs> for real. And like the producers and editors were all these different archetypes of dudes, which was the sly fox, the guy who looked at you with the eyes. What's your favorite Dan Ratherism? Is it? Oh, if, if, a, if I, a frog had pockets, he'd I, there are too many. Like you could just Google <laughs> I love them. That was it had, mostly dudes? These dudes that you described was the bureau mostly dudes? It wasn't a bureau. It was the heart, the beating heart of the network. So there was also the screaming fussy Brit. We had the eight foot tall Texan. And of course, the silver secret keeper, who was the guy who knew everybody's dirt, and that's why he was still there. Now, you asked about women. Mm -hmm. There were many badass women at CBS News. In fact, they were the women who broke the gender barrier at CBS News, and they were one of whom was a vice president, one was a bureau chief, one was featured in the movie Broadcast News. Like, uh -huh. there was a proud tradition of amazing women at CBS News. So I'm not saying they didn't exist, but they were mostly off doing cool things and not where I was, which is these big swinging dicks who I found alternately terrifying and ridiculous depending how close they were to me <laughs> if they were close i found them terrifying if they were far away having like a big serious huddle i was like what is this so when it came time for me like you the one theme about your and my after hour story we talk about the airport story is that the overnight is a refuge from bullshit right <laughs> because it is not enough people and not enough energy for bullshit. <laughs> so suffice to say, like once I got on that overnight, it was hard for me to get off for a variety of reasons, but mostly because people, for the most part, would do their jobs. And it was a brutal shift. And also, I, I genuinely love working with people all around the world. Was it less political, too, because fewer yeah. people were aspiring to get Who there? Who wanted in the to get on the, the overnight? Yeah, Everybody yeah. wanted to get off. And I didn't care. I just was like there and doing my job and trying to figure out how not to fuck up. From my own personal experience, I would think that the overnight desk or the overnight shift on a desk like that would actually be where the first hints of stories would 
Yeah. The world woke up long before we did. Right. So, all right. So I would get there at like 1230 to read in, do a handover with the person who was there on that swing shift from four to midnight. One to two was trying to wake up, getting read in. Two to three was Tokyo and Moscow and talking to them. Three to four was prepping for this god-awful 4.30 morning show that nobody wanted to be on. By the way, I got to say, that term, getting read in, when we were first dating, I didn't know what the fuck that meant. <laughs> and you always said it. I, w- I was always like, hey, Jenny, it's me. Uh, uh, just calling to see how you're doing. This is our, our, our like nine months or so that we were long distance. So how was your night last night? I got to go. I got to get read in. It sounded like such a bullshit yeah. term. <laughs> You had made up. Just means catching up with during what happened during the day, catching up with the news, what's what's going on, what might be coming. That has a very different meaning where I come from. Oh, oh no! <laughs> I want to hear what that involve, is. Like a ratchet clank? <laughs> no. All right. Not always. We said that at AP. Getting okay, ready. Getting ready, and that was a term. Are you like working on stories, or are you coordinating other people? So my job was weird. Four thirty to seven was the shit crazy time. That was when everybody was barreling towards the the morning news seven a.m. live shot, and then there was an eight a.m. live shot, and that was like the time when everybody was stressed out, and there weren't enough people to do a two hour broadcast. Then it was like quick breath from seven fifteen to seven thirty, eight a.m. live shot, mop up, breathe, pee, write the handover, get out. <laughs> really, sometimes it was like, can I pee? Can I pee tonight? Will tonight be a pee night? And then I would, this is like the problem with the overnight shift, as you guys well know. So you stumble home and you're just a wreck because you've been up all night, but the light is out and your body, like 10,000 years of human evolution is like, don't go to sleep, go do something. Here's a logistical question because as you know, I am a logistician. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Saved America. (laughs) Yeah, saved America. When you're there at the overnight, because you're there at the overnight, is that the period when people are cleaning the bathrooms because when else yes. would they clean the bathrooms yes okay so you sometimes <laughs> could not get in the bathroom when you wanted to pee which was another problem but sometimes you're the first person peeing and it's a clean in a, oh, bathroom. A virgin bathroom it's so yeah. great do you get a lunch break no there was no breaks no it was break. no no it just kept happening but i would eat a lot of breakfast so when i would wake up at 10 30 at night <laughs> After sleeping all day, I would eat breakfast. She still does. Because that was the only thing that I could eat. Like, my stomach was so unsettled. And then I would go to work, and maybe I would have time to order, like, pancakes from the place down the way, the diner, 24-hour diner. And then I would get off work, and the only way to make myself go to sleep was eat another breakfast. It was a a three-breakfast-a-day job. And so that caused certain problems that have proceeded along the way to my ultimate conclusion. Um, (laughs) So I worked in this big drafty television studio room and it was freezing cold all the time. I was at this desk in the backdrop of the anchor desk where it was like just like 10 years worth of binders full of like phone numbers to earth stations. Is this uh, Times Square? No, it was right by the river. They they used to be a like a factory where they would like either kill or milk. It was dairy cows. And so they would herd these cows off the river and up through these long narrow hallways and then they decided this will make a great news bureau. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's where I worked every night at the foreign desk and I had one colleague who was in shouting distance. And he was this old guy with long flowing white hair, Irish guy named Jim Brannon. And I think he was like a thousand year old wizard because he'd been doing the job forever. Did he keep it in a ponytail or just let it Sometimes in a ponytail and sometimes it flowed down and he had this like magical twinkle in his eye. And he didn't really talk. He just sort of at this point was so tired that he would growl. So he'd be like, there's Jim Brannon on the national desk and I need a truck and I need a reporter. Are you sure he actually worked there? (laughs) 
<laughs> that Maybe I mean, not. He was just a homeless guy who wandered in. No, he was a really, he was one of those guys that at first glance you would be like, oh boy. And then you were like, no, this guy really knows his stuff. He's been doing this for a long time. And he was a kind person, especially after his daily jelly donut. Aww. So he was nightly. He was nightly jelly donut. You're right. And then down in the basement below us, below the studio, were all the tape jockeys who were getting stuff ready for the morning news. And they were just like this weird combination of like young, crazy reprobates who were like young and fresh, and this was their first job, and old as dirt union guys who were, was like. I'm the guy that blanks the Sounds tapes. Sounds like our TSA job. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, I'm going to put this tape on a magnetic conveyor belt. I'm going to watch it go down the magnetic conveyor belt. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm going to put the tape in the basket. I'm going to repeat this 8,000 more oh, times. Oh, my God. And that I'm sounds like something out of a Hudsucker proxy. the money that you do. Blanking the tape was a job. Blanking the tape was a job. And so the leader of this band of nightsiders was very appropriately, his name was Bat. B-A-T-T, Bat. And his car was the Batmobile. The Batmobile. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, Bat Masterson. This guy was a class A, number one, terrifying white guy. He was from the South, and he had this perfect posture, and very slim guy, played polo, and he could wither you to fine ash with the look of his eye. And it was his job to get the news on this otherwise fluffy morning show. And he had this very flat, dead voice that would just cut you like a free razor. Like he could just bring you down. It was. I, I feel like, Charlie, you might know people like this. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was by conscious design and intent and successful execution, a total asshole. It was his game plan. And... I bet you never grabbed Bat by the face to pull him away. No, I never did. I never did. He like he was like a demanding. He didn't trust anyone. He and he was one of those people like you and me and Matt who could not survive on Dayside because of the bullshit factor. So within the confines of this old building, like he was in charge, but he was actually one of my favorite people to work with because once he knew that you knew even fifty percent of what you were doing, he let you do your job. And he was a good person to work with. So that was my first lesson in not every asshole is just another swinging dick. Sometimes they're a really smart guy that just needs to know that you're not going to screw up the broadcast. You asked what was the job. The job was a phone operator, a cheerleader, a therapist, and a spy. It was the weirdest job in the world because there were these foreign bureaus all over the world and they all had their own bureau. So these reporters and correspondents that were coming in, they all had their own bureaus. The people they really trusted were there, you know, the lifeline people, the people you called when you were like, do I go left or right in this very scary desert? And then you call back and you're like, I need a new armored vehicle. And they would get you it. Like those were the badass motherfuckers of that particular bureau, the London bureau, the Tokyo, whatever it was. We were like the other desk. We were the desk you called, the foreign desk. That was the other number they knew when you're like, okay, I need to talk to this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy. And since my satellite phone is dubious, I need you to transfer me through and through and through and through. But the person who did that job also needed to understand how to book a geosynchronous satellite. You know, so it was a weird combination of high knowledge and could you transfer a phone. And so like these people would call in from God knows where they were and... It was almost like I was the conductor of a ride 
at Disneyland if that ride was like, let me get you to the next grumpy asshole. <laughs> like, like, it was a weird... <laughs> it was a weird job. We called that basic training. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you done with radio now? Oh, let me get you over to the morning show. Oh, okay. Oh, are you okay? Was that an explosion? Oh, okay. Let me get you over to uh, this guy who's going to yell at you. All right. I, I was like, such a Stockholm syndrome. Like I looked up to them so much because they were out there doing it and I had no idea how to do this job. I wanted to be a producer, right? Like I wanted to learn what they did and I admired their ethos because they were bureau people. This is like your unit. These are no bullshit kind of people just like the people on the overnight because it's trust or die. I feel like Charlie can relate and I feel like in a marriage you can relate too. Like this is trust or die Mm -hmm. and these are my kind of people. So the other problem is, is that if you called New York, if you were a foreign correspondent or the producer, no matter where you called, there was a decent chance on the overnight that you might get a moron on the other end of the line. Because sometimes the overnight was where you stuck, like the people who you didn't want on the day side. Not because they were like maybe a little bit sassy like me, but because they were morons. And I remember this one girl and this was like after. <laughs> uh, you're describing me on the overnight. In, yes. Uh, TSA. <laughs> yes, I am. Did they put people on the overnight to make them quit? Some people they just genuinely put on the overnight because they trusted them. Like Jim, Jim Brandon. They, you trust that guy to do his job. Well, yeah. And, and the more morons you stack on the overnight, the more you want at least one guy like one that. One guy like that. <laughs> so if right. everything goes horribly wrong, right. you've got a decent chance of one guy being imprecise. Like my number yes. one responsibility was to know when to wake people up. Like, mm. shit goes bad. And sometimes, like, the London bureau chief would be like, wake them up. And I'd be like, that's the answer. But sometimes you'd have to, if it wasn't in the London realm, you'd have to be like, okay, is it my time to wake up that's the vice president? That's a hard call. That's a really hard call. Because you're wrecking the president of CBS yeah. News's day if you call and you wake them up and it's not important. He's going to be like, fuck off. But sometimes it was really important. And he was, this was Andrew Hayward. He would never yell at you if you woke him up. He'd be like, thank you for letting me know. And usually it was because someone out there needed to talk to him. So fine. Could you wake Dan Rather up? I would not be the one to wake Dan Rather up. Unless specifically directed by like one of two people. I don't have a Dan Rather impression. All I have is a Tom Brokaw impression and all I have of that is him saying the phrase Miami-Dade County. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sum total of my newsman impression. (laughs) I had to prove as the new girl on the overnight that I was not a moron. And what I did was I did this by just listening to them. So these like really grizzled old foreign correspondents would call me up. I'd pick up the phone. I'd be like, foreign desk, Jenny. And they would go, what the fuck is the fucking fuck of the fucking fuck that's fucking going on? And this is bullshit. And that is bullshit. It would go on for five minutes. And then it would say, but I know it's not your fault, Jenny. And then hang up the phone. (laughs) And so I learned to just let them have their moment of venting because they're in some god-awful hellhole and someone in New York, someone else is asking them a really stupid question that's dangerous to their lives. Right, and this, is this before Google Maps? And This like- is early, this is MapQuest Maps. So the internet was available as a reporting tool, but they certainly did not have it on their phones. So they were calling their bureau for or my desk information. for information, like actual, like, I could die if you give me this wrong information. For that kind of information, believe me, they called the London Bureau. Mm-hmm. So I was more like, is this executive awake? Who should I talk to? Uh, what do you think? Like that sort of stuff. And so... I remember like 
learning how to be a producer just by watching all of this or listening to all of this unfold. And the one time I actually did go to the Lennon Bureau, I remember sitting down in the office of my favorite producer and just being like, all of 24 years old, and being like, how do I learn to produce? And him just looking at me with like the poker face, right? And just being like, I can't tell you that. I don't know what to tell you. And I was like, great, shortest meeting ever, like run out, like super embarrassed. What I was actually asking was, how do I solve problems? Because that's all producing is. Producing is solve this problem. Okay, this problem leads to a new problem. And that's what I learned. It's just fucking series of solving problem after problem after problem. It was like, I kept doing this job and I kept doing this job and it was taking a greater physical toll and a greater physical toll because it was at night. Your body is not meant to be at night. And then 9-11 happened and it was right there and it happened. I'm not going to tell that story now because it's too sad, but like it was right there at at the end of the eight o'clock live shot when you have that like, (sighs) supposed to go home, supposed to get start gearing up towards going home. The world basically exploded. And so that's a whole other story, but it it obviously impacted the foreign reporters and they were like, we're going to Tora Bora. Mm. And so we had this one, this goes back to the moron problem. And this one BA, she was like, kind of like pre-millennial. Sorry, a broadcast associate. Younger than an associate producer. I, as an associate producer, was younger than the producers and like less experienced. But mm-hmm. it was like 11.30 in the morning, so an hour and a half after I was supposed to go home, probably like two months in t- after September 11th. And one of the people in the field was like, listen, I need you to pull me this fact, this fact, this fact, and this fact about the Taliban. And I'm already like like zombie-eyed, exhausted. But me, I'm like in full like panic mode. I'm like, yes, yes, I will do that. And then somebody else asked me something. Somebody else asked me something. And I was, so I turned to this one girl who shall go nameless. <laughs> and I say, could you just pull me these facts about the thing? Because these guys are going to be on 60 Minutes 2 tonight. So this isn't even for our broadcast. This is for like the big shit 60 Minutes 2 broadcast. And she said, oh, no. And I was like, pardon me, say what? And she'd been on since like six in the morning. And I'd been on since one in the morning. Yeah, she wasn't right. part of the overnight. No, she, she was comes in at in. six, six thirty, I think. And she'd had coffee. Yeah. She had sleep. She had sleep. And I was like, why? I, I was like holding my temper. I was trying to have my temper. She said, because <laughs> yesterday they called and asked for the same thing. And later I found out that someone else at 60 Minutes 2 was already doing the research. And I turned to her. And I fucking actually lost my shit. And I was like, these fucking people are in fucking Tora Bora. Tora Bora, Afghanistan, a place that shouldn't even be a place. And you're bitching about like duplicative research. And I went so far down the line of just being sick and exhausted and scared for all the people I really cared about out out there. And she started to cry. Because some fights are worth having. Yes. Shut (laughs) up. Shut up. And I made her cry. I made her cry so hard that my boss pulled me into his office and was like, look, I understand your point, but you went too far. You need to go home, go to sleep. I will get someone to do the research. And so, of course, I then felt terrible because I'm not a yeller at ladies by nature. Like, I want to help people. But I was just so pissed at no. What the fuck you mean no? That I, like, couldn't go to sleep. And so I go home and my dad lives on the Upper West Side, really close to CBS. And I went to his, and I just, instead of going to my room and sleeping it off, I couldn't sleep. My brain was so wrapped up. There's a picture of me on his couch in his sort of like office slash living room, curled up in a little ball, still in my clothes, with the cat, 
like my arm wrapped around the cat and just curled up in the tightest little ball of misery. And that's where I fell asleep that day because I couldn't be alone because of how much it was like wearing on me and tearing on me. And like when I woke up from that feeling just like the earth's garbage, I was like, okay, maybe it's time I need to actually go do this stuff Mm -hmm. instead of being a facilitator because I'm surrounded by too much bullshit. And at least if I was out somewhere doing it, the bullshit would be on the other end of the phone. And having been on the other end of the phone, yeah. you would know how to cut through that bullshit. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, I basically told everybody that I was moving to California for a guy I liked, and if there was no job, that's fine. I was just going to leave CBS. And then very, His name was Barry. Yeah, his name was Barry Flanagan. <laughs> and I was very lucky because there was a job available in the mythical, legendary, amazing Los Angeles Bureau, and I managed to scam them into thinking that I could do a good job at, at being an associate producer in the field, despite having never done it. And I moved out here. And so it all worked out. But before, before we wrap up this fine night, I did want to tell you the best story ever from the overnight. And there are a lot of stories that I actually can't tell because they're other people's stories. But I think this one deserves busting out of the vault. So you remember... After 2001, people started getting sent to weird little bases in Afghanistan called like Camp Tiger right, or right. Camp X-Ray. And in fact, it was Camp X-Ray that this story takes place in. What they did was it, resources were scarce because this was really forward in the field of operations. And they would take five journalists, one from each major network, and they would allow that journalist one day in which that journalist was on all five networks reporting from Camp X-Ray. And Alan is making a face that says this never fucking happened to journalism. Happen in journalism. Because right. the one thing you never do in journalism is have someone else's guy on your broadcast. Right. Mm-hmm. So they were embeds? They were embeds, but instead of, they didn't have the res- resources to keep putting these guys up in the sky, five of them on five different networks. So the military decided economically that one guy would talk to all the networks on one day and then another guy would talk to all the networks on another day. I can see where logistically and and resource-wise that would make sense. Well, also, you've got to understand that the resources that they're using to move the journalists are the same resources that might be saving the life of soldiers that are in the field. Right. So the less weight you're carrying... The more soldiers you're going this to be. This was able about to like mm-hmm. sitting in a camp and being in front of a satellite. So, whatever that totally valid reason was, it probably had to do with satellite time, and that's fine. Well, because the satellites are also used for soldiers to talk to their loved ones back home. There you go. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we have Charlie here to tell us that because that's super important. Mm-hmm. So, Bat, this guy Bat, the king of the night, does not like other people on his network from other networks. So, he's a genius. He's an evil genius, and he figures out the, these guys were allowed to call in to radio, right? So they were allowed to their, call their own radio things because you do that over the phone. So Bat figures out, well, what is television anyway? Television is just a radio track with pictures. So he starts getting our correspondent, who's just a total Canadian world-traveling badass, to call in a, quote, radio track. Oh, wow. That then we would put pictures to and put out as television, thereby mm. negating the need to get other random dude from Fox News or NBC or ABC. Video pool is common. I mean, yeah, yeah. So the video time, was right. all common, but we were cheating. But it's common to do video pool. Yeah, but we were cheating the system by having our dude on our air every right. day when everybody else had to do this uncomfortable arrangement. But it was only because our guy was super smart about it. So... 
there's a pool when you say pool feed pool video Mm -hmm. there's a pool call and you're on the pool call and you're watching the video come in and it's like not a crazy time of day it's like six o'clock and we're watching the video come in i'm looking at the screen and all of a sudden i see the picture of a guy taking a shower (laughs) naked (laughs) and i see his bare ass and he's doing the little under his arm scrubby scrubby scrubbies and the guy turns around mercifully framed and it's my cbs news european correspondent (laughs) naked on a pool feed feeding to all five networks (laughs) and so i click down on the little two wire button which is like the instant communication to the pool and i say um cbs to pool cbs to pool pool here uh, hello, Pool. Uh, could you please get my correspondent's naked ass off the feed? <laughs> and everything explodes. This was just an accident? No, it was not. The other guys, the other network embed guys, were so pissed off that we had figured out a way to bypass them being on the Tiffany network that they'd sent one of their guys, it's like the ratchet thing in the latrine, sent one of their guys to film my guy taking a field shower and feed it into the pool. So I'm mortified. Because Which is kind of funny. It's kind of funny. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. I'm completely mortified. And I'm looking like wow. around and I'm like, get this. I think I started cursing. I was like, please get this fucking tape off the pool feed. Because this is pre-YouTube. This is pre-YouTube. Thank God. And so then the calls start to come in from the London Bureau. Foreign Desk Jenny. Well, what did it look like? This is the London <laughs> Bureau yeah. calling me for a breaking news report. And I was like, I... Uh, I uh, and I was like, who do I need to call about this situation? Wait, is this pool feed going out to thousands to of news? Five out- different networks. Oh, just five. five the five it's, major it's, networks and their affiliates. But, so it's going to thousands. It's going to thousands of people. Like this ass is traveling at the speed of light. It's probably in space. It's going everywhere. <laughs> That's probably in space. <laughs> and I am like mortified. And I don't know what to do. So I call my boss, who's on his way in at this point, and I said, "So this happened," and he's like, "You need to call Marcy." So I call the vice president of CBS News at the time, and she is a royal badass. And so she calls, and she was like, first she says, what did it look like? (laughs) And I was like, Marcy! And then she was like, no, 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 okay. So this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna, like, and so we we execute this plan. And then I'm, like, literally, like, bright red. Then the phone rings again. And it's my correspondent. This guy is like, he's been every shit place ever and whatever, and he goes, eh, so, uh, he's Canadian, uh, What's this I hear about my rear being on television? I was like, okay, so this is what happened. And and that's it. So the final phone call I get of the day, and I like, I mean, I am like the biggest celebrity in the world because somehow mysteriously, typically, downstairs, the record room has no memory of this tape. Everybody's looking for this tape. Where's the tape? We gotta destroy the tape. But nobody can find the tape. So the final phone call I get is from this longtime producer in the London Bureau, who's my favorite producer, the one who told me, like, you, I can't tell you how to produce. You just have to go get it. And I pick up the phone, foreign desk Jenny, and all I hear is, I hope you have that tape. <laughs> <laughs> because like a good producer, he's thinking ahead to the inevitable 2025 retirement. Oh, right. And right. the tape that they're going to want to show in the reel. And I had to tell him, I had to disappoint him and be like, nobody rolled. Like, nobody rolled. This is so CBS. Nobody rolled on the tape of the century. And so it doesn't exist. (laughs) uh, Before we wrap this up, I just do want to say that 
the the guy I put in the wall locker, I did let him out. You did let him out. Yeah, he didn't die. <laughs> he didn't he's, die. He's not still in a wall locker. <laughs> I like the clarification. And I want to say I liked your story, but I object to the phrase, I moved out to California and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I fell in love and I got married and I learned how to laugh at things instead of how to yell right. at them. Like, I feel like we're missing a Charlie story about Tora Bora. <laughs> I, I did not go to Afghanistan, but I know... But, but funnily enough, I've still got one. Yeah. <laughs> still several, got one. Several friends uh, that, that did operate <laughs> in that area, uh, and some that are still operating in that area. And uh, I, all I really want to say about that is probably my proudest accomplishment in my entire military career is that all of the guys that I trained with and the ones that I trained came back oh, that's great whole mm-hmm. and healthy and in all of their original shapes and designs and i've you know every one of them is will forever be in my heart the finest gentleman i have ever gotten to share space with but did anyone serve their country as well as matt flannery <laughs> <laughs> well, may I say to them also, thank them for their service because really, like, it was brutal. And really, those journalists, like, just like your guys that you'll never forget, these are the people that I'll never forget because they shaped who I am. They shaped the level of things I had to live up to. And I never will. And, you know, some very tragic things happened after I left, too. And that's a story for someone else to tell another time. And equal to you guys, I will never forget the many people I've masturbated to. Oh, my God. (laughs) I couldn't live up. I couldn't live up. Jesus H. Roosevelt Christ. I I couldn't live up to you guys. Oh, my God. All right. I'm going to do this in the postscript. Uh, Thank you both for coming. Uh, Charlie, a pleasure as always. Alan, great to have you out in Los Angeles. Matt Flanagan, I'm going to fucking take your face and pull you away from the microphone. Masculinity be damned. Well, that right there is living actual proof that Matt Flanagan never met a serious moment he couldn't slice the shit out of with his razor comedy claws. But I love that episode, not only because it made me look back on a really interesting time in my life, but because thanks to Charlie, who was a member of the U.S. military, and Alan, who was a fellow journalist, they each had a fascinating perspective on that story that I still probably still don't have enough perspective on that time. But the one thing I will say is uh, I chose to tell you a funny story. One of the few funny stories that took place between the worst act of domestic terrorism in our country's history and a period of never ending international war. Uh, In between there, there was one brief funny story. But unfortunately, not a lot of the stories that came out after about journalists were all that funny. In fact, too many of them were tragic. So I would encourage you, next time you hear somebody railing about the mainstream media or the biased media or whatever adjective they'd like to put in front of media, just to go take a look at the Committee to Protect Journalists and uh, see what's going on there. But that's where my mind always goes when people start railing about the media. I think about all of those reporters in other countries from all around the world risking their lives so that we can, for a brief moment, 
think outside our own borders. Anyway, within the borders of this story, thank you for listening to rather a long episode. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Thank you for being lovely, thoughtful people who write us amazing emails at tellitanyway at gmail.com. Thank you to this cold that I have for continuing to keep me company. Did I thank the patrons yet? Thank you, patrons. We just hit $100 an episode, which allows us to do, that's our first goal. And it allows us to do so much that we could not do before. Uh, So thank you. And uh, I will talk to you next week. What did you do, America? Why the you got excited and you started something. Nations jumping all around. Oh, I don't care. You got a lot to answer for. They lay the blame right at your door. It's a The world is ragtime crazy. From shore to shore. London dropped its dignity. So has France and Germany. My word, all hands are dancing to a raggedy. Melody. Full of originality. The folks who live in sunny space. Men who own the motor cars. By Joe, throw up their shoulders to that raggedy melody. Full of originality. Italian opera singers have learned to snap their fingers. The, the world goes around to the sound of the international rag. rag.